Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, good to see you. I, I had to stop singing. Uh, I assigned that last uh, song just to listen to all of you sing. It was heavenly. It was absolutely marvelous. And uh, uh, as the old saying goes, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And with that in mind, let us pray. Father, we know wherever we go can be a holy place. And wherever we go, Lord God, there can be a holy moment. A time and place, a time and space carved out of the busyness and hustle of our schedule where we are just for a moment set apart from all of that. And our heart and our mind are in tune with the rhythm of grace and with the voice of your spirit, and we sense your presence. Father, this is a place for that now. This is a time for that to happen. Not only, Lord God, as we have gathered to worship you and gathered as your body, your church, to worship you, but also, Lord God, in a time of coming before you with confession, receiving the assurance of forgiveness, and even of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the time of coming together at your table where we are reminded of the unity that is ours through the finished work of Christ. In hearing the word preached as well, Father, there is an interaction and exchange that takes place where our spirit and our mind are quickened and even opened by your spirit to understand the scriptures and then, Father, to apply them and to share what we have learned to know, Lord God, that we are not merely taught, not merely educated, but we are indeed inspired and challenged by your word to be those who bear the light, who are salt in truth, who go out and tell others and share with them the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, that this table is open to all those who make that wonderful profession of faith inspired by your spirit and grounded and rooted in the work of Christ. And so it is that we come now, Lord, to your word, this word about your table, this meal that represents for us not only life everlasting, but of an unbroken and unbreakable communion with you, a covenant that cannot ever be severed because the one who inaugurated it, the one who created it, the one who established it, sealed it forever with his blood. And thereby, Lord, has guaranteed for us a salvation that will outlast this present darkness, this present world, this present life, and gives us a foretaste of the life to come, of a meal yet to take place, a great feast where you will serve well-aged wine and the choicest foods. And we, O Lord God, will rejoice in that meal because it will never end. There will never come a parting. There will never come a time where we will grow bored or overfed. A time, Lord God, when we will grow tired of the feasting, when the children will no longer tire us with their whining because they too will be overwhelmed by the glory of your presence and the magnificence of your holiness, the overwhelming character of your grace. Father, we come to this moment brought here by your Holy Spirit to experience the grace, the mercy, the loving kindness, and even 
the judgment of God as we understand these elements to represent that the judgment that ought to have fallen on us has been born and carried and experienced by the precious Lamb of God who is even now seated on the throne and yet still is present with us in this place. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would sanctify this moment, that you would make it holy, that you would make this place holy by your presence and by the gathered assembly of your people here, clothed as we are in your righteousness and in your goodness and in your holiness. That where we would shrink back, O Lord God, and hide and cover our faces as did Moses, we might now, with the help of your Spirit, uncover our eyes. And unlike Isaiah, not say, woe is me, for I am done done, but rather say, glory to the Lamb, who has made such a vision possible, that I may gaze upon the beauty of God and the glory of his holiness without fear of death, but might bask in that light and in that glory and in that truth forever. Oh, what a moment, O oh Lord God. So speak to us now, we ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now after this message, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we will enjoy communion, uh, fellowship with one another. And this meal goes by at least those two names, the Lord's Supper, communion, meaning a fellowship. It also is at times referred to as the Eucharist, and that usually comes from uh, the part in the, the Last Supper when Jesus takes the bread and gives thanks, the Eucharist, Eucharisto, Thanksgiving. So we celebrate this meal here at Maranatha on the first Sunday of every month. And the text that was read this morning, it's a familiar text. We read it every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that creates both a sense of comfort and perhaps even a problem because our very familiarity with this text and the regularity with which we celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, can make it possible for us to, if not forget, maybe even overlook the significance of what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed in the night before he was crucified. It's easy to forget that the meal that Jesus ate with the apostles in that upper room was, in fact, a Passover meal a meal that celebrated the fact that when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, that on that night a lamb was slain. And the blood of that lamb was smeared on the doorframe of the houses of the people of Israel. So that as the angel of the Lord went through Egypt, the firstborn in Israel were passed over while the firstborn of everything in Egypt, from livestock to humans, was killed. More significantly, it is in fact the last Passover meal ever celebrated under the Old Covenant. So our potential lapse in memory explains why in the Old Testament, in a span of two consecutive chapters, Moses encourages the Israelites to remember the importance of that Passover night. He says first in Exodus 12, 26 and 27, 
talking to the Israelite parents, he says, when you're children, you sit down to have this meal because it is to be an everlasting memorial under the old covenant. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And then again, in the next chapter, in Exodus 13, 14, and 15, again, when in time your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So Jesus takes the cup on that Passover night, and he proclaims this. When he takes up the cup, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. When he said those words, when he inaugurated and instituted that supper, what he is doing at that moment is he is closing the book on the old covenant, and he is beginning to write the very first lines of the new covenant, a covenant like the old covenant, which is ratified, sealed, guaranteed, and put into effect through the shedding of blood, because on Crucifixion Friday, what God did was strike down his firstborn son, that we might be redeemed, that we might be spared, that we might be saved, that we might, by partaking of this meal, might be reminded by his Holy Spirit and encouraged by the assurance that as God has made a way for us to be saved and redeemed through the death of his son, we now participate in all of the blessings that are earned for us by what Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins as the atoning sacrifice for them. If you want to put it in biblical terms, the the big idea for this passage is simply this, that the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal that is established by Jesus and designed to unite his church through the remembrance of what he did. This is a covenant meal. This reminds us that our God has established with us through the death of his firstborn son an everlasting covenant that cannot, will not, nor ever can be broken. Because the one who made it Though he died, came back to life. And as long as he lives, so this covenant is in effect. So our salvation is assured. That once we have come to faith in Christ, that salvation is guaranteed. And so just as the the Passover remembered how God rescued Israel by bringing them out of slavery into freedom from Egypt, so too this supper reminds us and remembers that Christ rescued us from the slavery of our sin, that we might serve him with joy and with gladness and with great thanksgiving. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember once again that God struck down his firstborn son that we might be redeemed. 
that we might have eternal life by grace through faith in Christ. So if someone asks, what do you mean by this service? What does this mean that you come together and you eat a, a crust of bread and you drink juice from a little cup? What do you mean by doing this? Why is this so important? We can say this, that we affirm by this meal our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior and atoning sacrifice for sin, that we refresh our hearts with the good news that our sins are forgiven because the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, that we receive when we eat this meal the spiritual nourishment we need to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we renew our commitment to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we renew our commitment to love one another just as Christ has loved us, that all people might know that we are his disciples. We remember in this meal that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is what this meal means. And that is why Paul writes so sternly to the Corinthians in this text. Because normally when we come to this moment at the end of a service on the first Sunday of the month, we read from 1 Corinthians 11, but we only read verses 23 to 32. We leave out the first part, which is 17 to 22, which establishes the context because the Corinthians were not celebrating the Lord's Supper well properly. They weren't giving it and treating it with the reverence and respect that it deserves by virtue of what it means and what it points to in terms of what Jesus did. So just to unpack briefly what is going on here in Corinth and then relating it to our time, the Lord's Supper is no ordinary meal, says Paul. That's what he means in verses 17 to 22, that he says in the following things, I have nothing, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. This is a problem that he's alluded to back in chapter 1. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Evidently, the Corinthians, as was the custom of the day with other uh, religions as well, would have a meal before celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the Christian common meal, or the love feast, follow the same pattern as the, the public sacred feasts among the Greeks and the Jews. And following Greek custom, the food was brought for everyone to share. Much like a potluck supper or if on a first Sunday fellowship, we just asked someone to bring a meal. But the problem was the rich, the wealthy, in whose home most likely the meeting took place because they could have have a, a, a place big enough to accommodate the church, the, the wealthy brought huge amounts of food. Well, the, the poor, 
the less well-off would bring simply what they could afford to bring. And then the food was distributed unevenly so that the, the rich shared among themselves and then the poor divided up what little they had among themselves. And Paul says, you're missing the entire point of the meal. You're missing the entire point of communion. And when you come together, you share and share alike. That there should not be this inequity within the body of Christ because the meal itself is designed to unify you. If the ground is level at the foot of the cross, so is the communion table. And so are the portions that are to be given to those who share. That's not necessarily the issue in our day, but mentally. And in our heart, we have those divisions that need to be mended, that need to be repaired. Paul says something amazing in verse 19 when he talks about the fact that, number one, he has heard about these divisions and he believes it in part because members from Chloe's household, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, members from Chloe's household have come and given Paul a report about, Paul, we've got a problem here at Corinth. We've got divisions. We've got cliques. We've got different factions and parties within the church. You need to address this. And Paul does, throughout the letter, address these things. But in verse 19, he says something very interesting. He says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What's interesting about that is Paul is saying, these divisions that are taking place among you, they are the natural result of human sinfulness and pride. And they also then reveal those among the body who are genuine believers because those who are truly committed to Christ will recognize these divisions and then they will seek to build bridges and then they will seek to reconcile and then they will seek to heal and they will hold accountable the fact that there are those who are dividing among themselves. Isn't that what Jesus did by dying on the cross? No Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female. Level. So Paul understands the fact that there are going to be divisions, and the reason why there are these divisions is so that those who are truly practicing the new commandment that Jesus gave in John 13... 34 and 35, that we love one another just as he has loved us, that then becomes evident. So when we have folks in our church who are working with others to reconcile and to bring together, they are in fact applying what Paul is getting at here. And by telling the Corinthians, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, he's criticizing their behavior because they're not approaching the Lord's Supper with the proper attitude. Remember, the, the, the problem, too, is that the Corinthians were most likely were Greek. And so there was no historical connection with the Passover meal. It's like people who, who are become naturalized citizens in the United States. They may celebrate July 4th, but there's no, there's no historical, there's no rootedness in terms of what that day means. In terms of our nation's history, if to one who is native-born to the U.S., we understand, okay, something happened on that day and then the events that followed. 
Paul is saying to the, the, the Corinthian Gentiles here, you need to understand that what's happening at that meal has deep, deep historical and spiritual roots that you are ignoring by the way that you're regarding this supper so lightly, treating it as sort of a, an addendum to the end of the meal, as if it's somehow your dessert rather than the main thing. So at the end, he's going to tell them, it'd be better off if you eat in your home and then come together and only celebrate the meal because that will add to the reverence and the respect and the honor and the majesty and the power of this meal. So the, the Lord's Supper is no ordinary meal. It's a covenant meal established by Christ and designed to unite his church through the remembrance of what he has done. And then it, secondly, it, it points to Jesus as the author of our salvation. Because then Paul goes on to write in uh, 23 to 26, talking about his own participation in this. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, then Paul adds this comment. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The reason why Paul cannot praise their conduct is because they are out of step with the spirit with which the Lord instituted the supper to begin with, which is to unite, to bring together everyone under the umbrella of his grace, mercy, and loving kindness. And Paul says, this is what I received. Whether he received it directly from the Lord by means of revelation or what is more likely he received it in communication with the other apostles, he says, what I have received, I'm passing on to you. And then you need to pass it on to others. And despite having passed on to them, and Paul spent, I think, 18 months with the Corinthians. Even if he celebrated the Lord's Supper once a month, which is unlikely, he probably celebrated it more often than that. Despite the repeated times that he celebrated the Lord's Supper with them, the Corinthians were not approaching the supper with the reverence and the respect that it deserved. They had forgotten that it's a covenant meal. They had forgotten what the this in this is my body means. That the bread, while still saying, saying and remaining the bread, represents something significant and meaningful. It represents the bruised and broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ that Isaiah 53 refers to. That the Lord's Supper is connected with the Passover is also made clear in the phrase that in the same way also after dinner he took the cup saying, this cup in a Passover meal would have been the third of the Passover cup, the, the cup of thanksgiving. And the, both, like the, like the bread, the, the cup here refers not to the container, but to what's in it. Because it's what's in it, that's the thing. And what's in it, says Jesus, is my blood, blood of the new covenant. That just as the old covenant was ratified with the blood of bulls and goats, so too this new covenant 
is ratified. Remember, in the Old Testament, whenever a covenant was made, whenever a contract was made between two people, it usually involved the cutting in half of an animal. We see this in Genesis 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham and Abraham uh, has, he, he puts Abraham into Abraham cuts animals apart and then God puts him in a deep sleep and Abraham sees a smoking pot and a, and a torch passing through the elements, passing through the dead bodies of these animals, symbolizing the fact that it wasn't Abraham that was committing to keep the covenant, but it was God himself represented in the smoking fire pot and the torch. That at a, at, a, at a date set in the future, on a mountain overlooking a town garbage heap, God incarnate fulfilled his end of the covenant that he had made with Abraham by dying in our place, by ratifying an eternal covenant. That as Moses had sprinkled blood onto the, the altar, there in the, the Pentateuch. So now the blood of Christ is shed for us that we might be cleansed by. We've sung about it. Robes dipped in crimson, the blood and guilt of our sin washed clean by the blood of Christ. That every promise that God made under the old covenant is fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this meal represents. Not just eating a piece of bread and drinking a cup and saying, thank you, Lord, I'm saved. But an eternity went into this moment. An eternity of planning went into this moment that we are about to engage in. I... I if you want to get a sense of the importance of this meal, beyond just what Paul says here, read, read the letter to the Hebrews, the most Old Testament of the New Testament letters. I like this part in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, where the writer is talking about the difference between the, the earthly Mount Zion and the Mount Zion that exists in another realm. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So at the end of this service, when we stand up, when we come forward, there are the assembled here in this place. But according to the scriptures, we are also joined in this celebration and remembrance by innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and even with Jesus himself, who invites us to the feast, who is the founder of the feast. Now, Jesus didn't say how often we should celebrate his supper. 
He only said, do this in remembrance of me. So some churches celebrate this meal weekly. Some do it every three months. Some only do it at uh, odd times or special times of the year, maybe Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. We choose to do it monthly. And I think we choose to do it monthly in order to preserve the sense of reverence and respect for the meal. But the frequency of it isn't the issue. It's what happens when we partake of it, that we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done and continues to do through the proclamation of his word and through the work and power of his Holy Spirit. And we do this in remembrance of him, says Paul, because by doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? It means... This meal points to the fact that the only way we can enjoy this meal as a covenant meal is by remembering that Christ died on the cross for our salvation. And that we testify both to one another and to the world that Christ is Lord, that Christ is Savior, that we are all, in fact, sinners saved by grace. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that he did so in order to save us from God's wrath, not with perishable things like silver or gold, says Peter, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. The marvelous thing about this supper is that it incorporates all three epochs of time. We stand here and we eat in the present, but we look backward, remembering what Christ has done, and we experience that grace and that mercy now. And then we look forward to the day when we stand before the judgment throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and thereby say, my only means of gaining entry into your kingdom of God is the righteousness of Christ purchased for me by his death on the cross. He did it back then. He continues to do it now. And it lasts unto eternity. Past, present, and future. Which, by the way, is the nature of our faith. Looking at what God has done in the past. Trusting him in the present. Depending on him for the future. This meal brings all of those elements together. That's why there is a solemnity and a joy to this meal. It's not like going to grandma's house every Sunday. Why do we have to do this? And your parents drag you. And they may drag you to this place. You have to have communion. The Lord's Supper points to Jesus as the author of our salvation, which is then why we need to examine ourselves before eating the supper, says Paul. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread, bearing all of this in mind, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But... If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, 
We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What does it mean to eat the bread and to drink the cup in an unworthy manner? Well, Paul says it's to fail to recognize the importance of these elements, what they represent, what they mean. To fail to do that, not just overlook it, that's one thing, but to deliberately ignore the significance of this, he says, is to sin against the body and blood of Christ. Now, here's the thing, that this, here's the lightning bolt, if you will, in this text. Because normally on a Sunday when we celebrate communion and we read 1 Corinthians, or I read, or one of the other pastors read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 32, and we get to this warning passage, we always apply it to those who don't know Jesus. That if you haven't made a profession of faith, do not eat, do not drink, lest you drink judgment on yourself. Paul is not talking to non-Christians. He is talking to men, to women, and children who have made a profession of faith in Christ and who have participated in this meal more than once. So with a lightning bolt, he tells them, if you fail to recognize the meaning of these elements, God will discipline you. You will experience judgment, not the judgment. He doesn't say it that way. If it was the final judgment, the final casting off, he would have used a definite article, the judgment. Instead, he uses judgment as a form of discipline. He says, that's why some of you are weak, you're, you're sick, you're infirm. Some of you have even died, who've experienced the severe mercy of God because at times God would rather take his children home than to see them persist in sin. That's severe. But that's the reverence and respect that this meal deserves. Not to be flippant about it. Not to be disrespectful toward it. Paul teaches that in eating and drinking these elements, we are, in a sense, physically eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. Yes, he is spiritually present in the heavenly realms. He is physically present there as well because Christ does have a body. But somehow, by the, the, the omnipresence of his being as the second person of the Trinity, Christ is now present when we eat this meal. And you don't disrespect the cook. You don't treat the cook with disrespect. You don't despise the food that's put in front of you when the cook has given his very life to prepare the meal. This is not okra that we're eating. It's bread. The bread of life. And Jesus called himself the bread of life. It's a hard word that he gives there. This is my body. Take and eat. It's why, it's why Luther turned away from a more general understanding of the symbolic nature of this meal and said, this is my body. And he holds to this idea that somehow the body of, and flesh of Christ is infused into the bread. We don't believe that. We believe that the bread stays bread, that the cup, the contents of it stay the contents. It's what they represent 
that Jesus is after. It's what they represent that Paul is after. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 78, says this. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No! Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the broken bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. What we have here is sign and seal. Christ died, Christ rose for our salvation. These are the elements that point to that. And baptism simply seals our commitment to him. And Paul tells us how to guard against an unworthy partaking of the Lord's Supper. He says, examine yourself. Put yourself under the microscope of his word. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart, your mind. To review your conduct. Some churches, some churches, especially the ones who only celebrate the, the Lord's Supper every quarter, the really, really reformed churches will do this. I had a friend in Canada who was part of a Dutch reformed church, and they, they celebrated communion once every quarter. The Sunday before that, uh, the Sunday before they celebrated communion was affectionately called as affectionately uh, uh, called the Hell and, uh, the Hellfire and Brimstone sermon. Because it was a stern warning to spend the next eight days mourning, grieving, thinking, considering your sin. So that when you came to celebrate and honor the Lord's table on the following Sunday, you were ready. Because you spent all of this time. We give ourselves 30 seconds to examine ourselves. To let the Spirit do His work. But at the same time, this is why we refer to this and baptism as a means of grace. Because in contemplating and considering where we have fallen short of the mark of God's intention, where we have sinned, the Spirit says, but the blood of Christ has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. And by confessing your sins and acknowledging that you have failed Him, you have now restored fellowship with him, communion with him. Now come and eat. The purpose of self-examination is not self-flagellation. It is not for the purpose of flogging yourself with how awful you've been or how badly you feel about your service to Christ. And if you do feel that shame, if you do feel that guilt, and have confessed faith in Christ, Jesus is here, the Spirit is here, the Father is here to say, I have borne that guilt, I have borne that shame, and all the ugliness that it brings with it, I have carried in my bosom, and I bear the scars on my body for them. So lay it down. Lay it down. You don't need to carry that burden. It's done. Let it go. The question arises, <clears throat> what to do with our children? Should children partake of the Lord's Supper? Uh, 
that's a decision, I think when we've discussed it among ourselves as, as pastors, if your child knows what self-examination means, if your child knows what this table represents, that they have come to faith in Christ, and if they can re relate that to you in a way that is appropriate for their age, then let them. Some churches will not allow children to have communion until they're baptized following a profession of faith. If that's your preference, if that's what your conscience will bear, so be it. The thing is to examine ourselves, to guard against eating and drinking to our own judgment by measuring ourselves against what God desires. And Paul is, is just reminding us of the importance of the meal. By failing to recognize the body, he says, when we eat the meal, we put ourselves at risk. And that's interesting because in verse 29, when Paul refers to the body, most, most interpreters will take him to mean the body of Christ. He's referring to the church. But in the previous chapter, Paul uses the same phrase, the body. In chapter 10, verse 17, he refers to the church as the body. So it's, it's possible and it's probably preferable to understand Paul using that phrase, the body, the same way here. That by failing to recognize what these elements do in terms of unifying the body, by drinking in an unworthy manner and eating of the word, you're fracturing the very unity of the church that Christ established by this meal. It's his death and resurrection that unites us. And to fail to see that, says Paul, just wrecks the entire thing. In his commentary on this text, um, the late Gordon Fee writes this. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. I wish I could imitate Dr. Fee because at this point his voice would go up about three octaves. It is the meal! <laughs> it is the meal uh, in which at common table with one loaf and a common cup they proclaim that through the death of Christ they were one body, the body of Christ. And therefore they are not just, I love this part, and therefore they are not just any group of sociologically diverse people who could keep those differences intact at this table. Here they must discern, they must recognize as distinct the one body of Christ of which they are all parts and in which they all are gifts to one another. For the well-to-do to fail to discern the body in this way, especially by abusing those of lesser sociological status, is to incur God's judgment. They're not just any group of sociologically diverse people. but we're one body. I love this. I, as you know, I know our time, uh, just get a little personal here. We don't know, you know, we're obviously, we're making plans to, to move on at some point. Um, and one of the things I know, because John and I have discussed this, is uh, how beautifully and wonderfully um, 
we have enjoyed the fellowship um, of this body. Um, we've we have served, if I without wanting to be offending, we have served primarily Caucasian churches that have been lily white. You're not. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because we can go anywhere in the world, you and I together, and we can come to this table, whether it's in the continent of Africa or the subcontinent of India or, in the, or somewhere in Malaysia or Indonesia, and not even be able to speak the same language. But this table, this table speaks. These elements, these elements do something. Not because there's anything special in them, but because of what they represent, because of who they represent. He is who unites us. The one who inaugurated this meal is the one who unites us. That's why we examine ourselves. Because he has done something that we in our own strength can never do. Lay aside our pride. Lay aside our prejudice. Lay aside every bias. Every judgmental attitude. And say, I love you. Truly. And honestly. The Lord's Supper is then best celebrated when every member is present, says Paul. Finally, Paul has something good to say to them. He says, when you gather together, welcome one another, practice hospitality. There are other things he wants to talk to them about, he says at the end of verse 34. Ooh, maybe that was the second letter. Maybe it was another letter. But he leaves us hanging there with what he did not say. But what he did say is that when you come together, welcome one another. And if you have to, eat at home and then come together. When Jill and I were, when I was in seminary and Jill was working at a dental office, we had a Bible study that met, I think it was on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock at night. And Jill used to work her hours were like 6.30 in the morning to like 6.30 at night. It was ridiculous. And uh, so we would gather at a friend's house. They had three kids, and all the other folks from our Bible study would gather. There was like 12 people. And uh, I would make, you know, I would make a, a bag uh, lunch for Jill and me, and I'd pick her up at Dr. LeClaire's office, and we'd hustle over to the house, and there we'd eat our peanut butter sandwiches or a ham sandwich if we had a good week financially. Um, and uh, the family that was there, they were finishing up like a three-course meal. Even though they had three kids, there was macaroni and cheese, there was hot dogs, there was meatloaf, and it was like, they didn't offer it to us, we didn't ask. And the other folks had already eaten at their house. We were the ones schlepping our bag lunch all over the place to everywhere we met. Paul says, don't do that. If you have something to share, bring it and share it. If you're not willing to share it, eat at home. So then when you come together, you can celebrate the Lord's Supper. So that in the gathered assembly, you receive one another with full welcome at the Lord's table. Because it's a covenant meal meant to unite. 
by the remembrance of what Jesus did. And I'll end with this. Some years ago, excuse me. Some years ago, I attended a, a preaching conference um, at which one of the speakers uh, was a man named uh, Thomas Long. He was a professor of preaching, I think, at Emory University or Chandler, one of the seminaries down south. And he told this story as a, when he was a little kid. His, uh, he had a large family. They would gather uh, every year for Thanksgiving. And as would sometimes happens, you know, in big families, when they get together for big meals, the adults sit in one room, and the kids have their own table. And it's just, that was us. You know, we sat at the kids' table, you know, throwing biscuits and ambrosia at one another while the adults, you know, ate in the other room. And then after everyone had eaten, Uncle Ralph, who was always a bit of a prankster, would gather all of the kids out in the backyard, and he would just set off fireworks. There's one Thanksgiving that had been particularly dry fall, and as Uncle Ralph was toying around with the fireworks, the fire started on the grass in the backyard. And quickly, everybody scrambled to find the hose and buckets of water to put out the fire, and eventually it was put out, and, and everyone just laughed and, and was relieved at the same time. And then the next Thanksgiving rolled around, and Uncle Ralph had died. And as they ate the meal, as they just sort of reminisced about the year that it had been, everyone with full bellies began to sit back and say, hey, remember, remember last year Thanksgiving, Ralph got out the fireworks? Oh, and, they, and, and story after story of Ralph began to unfold from memory of past Thanksgivings and other times with Ralph. And pretty soon it was as if Ralph had never died and he was present in that room and he was real, and he was tangible. Well, what do you think we do when we gather together at the Lord's table? What do you think we do when we read these words from the sacred text? Hey, do you remember what, what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed? Do you know, remember what he did when he knew what was about to happen to him? That rather than grieve over that, rather than become self-centered, he gave his life. And he gave us this meal whereby we could remember him. And I often wondered as I listened to Tom Long's story, what if at the end of that time of remembrance, someone had said, you know what we should do? We should have communion. You know, I've, I've officiated at enough funerals where after every funeral, after you go to the, the graveside and you, you do the committal service and you retreat back to the church for lunch, as they did in North Dakota, I often wondered, what if at the end of that meal, not only to honor the, not just to, not to honor the memory of the deceased, but to say, you know what? Let's have communion. Let's remember, death does not have the final word. We eat this meal, and so doing, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Which means he's alive. Which means those who die in faith are alive. And that we somehow gathered around this table, gathered in Christ's presence, certainly according to Hebrews 12, fellowship with them. Not in a weird occultish way, understand me but in a way in which you remember. Maybe as a child, your parent or your grandparent taking you to church and celebrating communion with you. 
A reunion awaits. This meal guarantees it. You think about that. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, celebrate the Lord's table. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is this wonderful gathering, this assembly that you have called us to be partnered with, to be gathered, Lord God, into your presence. A foretaste of a heavenly feast yet to come. An affirmation that we are yours. Father, we take this moment now as your body to examine ourselves in the light of your word. And in the few moments here, let us uh, confess our sins to receive uh, assurance of forgiveness and absolution, and then let us partake. So, Father, now let us confess our sins. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I confess before you, Lord, my own, uh, at times, my anxiety, my concern over the future, the wrestling that I have, O oh Lord God, at times with covetousness and an over-concern for money, for envy. And for the failure at times, Lord God, to let go of past regret and past hurts. Unforgiveness is a killer. Father, we are your people. <laughs> We're not good except by your grace. And we're yours. You've made sure of that. So forgive us our sins. And may we indeed, Lord God, forgive those who trespass against us as you have forgiven our trespasses. We thank you for the word of assurance that having confessed our sins, you have forgiven us. You have cleansed us from all unrighteousness with the blood of Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, whose blood speaks a better word than that of Abel, than that of bulls and goats, because it has the power to cleanse and to renew our conscience. Father, this we ask and give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.